0: Last week, Pastor Jared told us how Paul basked in the sunshine of God's love. He literally savored his victory over sin and death. And he said in chapter 8, verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when Paul asked the question in chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let me paraphrase his three-verse answer. Absolutely nothing I can think of. And boy, he thought of everything. Perhaps it was Paul's total personal delight in the gospel that forces his attention in the next three chapters to focus on his people Israel. He said in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This morning I'm going to be teaching out of uh, Romans 9. Uh, You might open your Bibles to that if you haven't already. But Romans 9, 10, and 11. This seems to be kind of feeding back to me, is it? Do some of you want me to get turned down a little bit? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Uh, But these three chapters are basically, or for the most most part, one long discussion divided into three chapters. Paul writes to the church in Rome to clarify God's relationship of the nation Israel from the Old Testament with Gentile believers. The Gentiles, the nations of the Old Testament for 2,000 years, were only able to know or relate to God their Creator through the revelation possessed exclusively by Abraham's children, the Jews. This morning we will begin with chapter 9, but I have to tell you, if you just sit down and casually read these three chapters and don't use time, patience, or other resources to study them, confusion, not comprehension, is often the end results they talk about doctrines like election predestination free will I call them some thorny theology they've been discussed and debated since the church was born and I'm I'm more than sure that complete understanding won't be grasped this side of heaven but let's carry on anyway It's our goal over the next few weeks to clarify some of the confusion and to challenge you to dig deeper into these chapters, these great chapters of God's Word. As I've read through these chapters, I think the key verse for us might be found in chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out and how true this is. Without the Holy Spirit this morning to teach us, we're left only with our own opinions and our own ideas. So it's my prayer as we continue to study Paul's letter to the Roman believers that we'll do so in an attitude of dependence on Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And dear Spirit of God, Teach us this morning. Let's open our Bibles now, and I think this morning we're going to go verse by verse. Verse 1 I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience is also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual, continual grief in my heart. Now, people may have thought that Paul. Grasping on to Jesus and Christianity so fiercely that he had turned his back on his own heritage, his countrymen. But he has not. For in verse 3 he says this, For I, would, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Well, we know that nothing can separate him from the love of God. But that's how deeply he feels about his own people. In fact, Moses was kind of the same way. In Exodus 32, Moses said, These people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of of gold. Yet now, speaking to God, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Here in verse 3, it's as if Paul is saying, the same heart that be within Moses is in me. For if possible, I would go to hell and suffer eternity if my kinsmen could be saved. How did Paul cultivate this attitude toward those who were out to get him? As we read in the book of Acts, out to kill him. Well, I believe he did it through prayer. Remember, he said, my heart's desire and prayer is that they might be saved. Praying for others can change our hearts toward them. Have you ever experienced that? You, you can even develop love for your enemies. Paul has the heart of Moses, but even more important, he has the heart of God. And I'm asking Do we? Do I? If Paul was willing to go to hell for the people that he loved, to be blotted out of the book of life, why won't we talk to the person next door or take someone that we work with to lunch or even call and invite someone to church? So my question as we begin is, does your heart break as God's does? Because those around us are rejecting the Savior. God is not willing that any should perish. Now that's an interesting thought in the middle of us talking about election and predestination and all. But God's Word teaches that He is not willing. The sovereign God, who could control everything, is not willing that any should perish. And he's given us a free will to make that choice for ourselves. In fact, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning his, concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering for us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When Jesus died, who did he die for? Everyone. All. That's right. Peter says this to answer his own statement about the condition of man. He makes it in verse 3 of that same uh, chapter. He says, man then and in the future, he calls it the last days. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying, I look around, and I don't see your God doing anything. They're spreading their humanistic, man-centered dogmas and creeds. Our first thought in the back of the bulletin, they're seeking to deny even the existence of God based on their own views of who a God should be, and therefore deciding what God should be doing. It's like they're saying, if there's a God, show me. If there's a God, where is he? If there's a God, why doesn't he do something? Um, Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher living 300 years before Jesus was born. He was thinking these exact same thoughts he made a famous statement about God and about what he thought God should be doing. Here's what he said. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but he's not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and and willing? Then whence come evil? Why do we have evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Well, I think Israel rejected the gospel, the Savior, for those very same reasons. The Christ, Jesus the Messiah, didn't appear as they expected. He didn't act as omnipotent as they wanted and expected. He was a blasphemer to them. Therefore, he was malevolent. He didn't destroy the evil. Who was the evil of that day? The evil Roman Empire. Then just as Epicurus had come to his conclusion, they cried out, why call him God? Crucify him. Our second point in our bulletin. Maybe you struggle with God for some of those same reasons. Not even recognizing it. He doesn't always meet up to your expectations of who God should be and what an omnipotent, all-powerful God should be doing. He hasn't worked things out your way or in your time frame. Perhaps God has said no or He said wait. Maybe He's even allowed you to suffer. Well, Humanism, which is what I think is the philosophy of of the world that we live in, teaches that mankind, the human race, is the highest being, the pinnacle of existence of all living things. That mankind, you and I, are the very center of the universe. That God should be using his powers as we desire for our good. Not his but Scripture teaches, us, teaches that our thoughts are not His thoughts. That's what Isaiah 55 tells us. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Peter told us that God is not willing that any should perish. God is holding back the justice and the judgment this world deserves until all those who will respond to his grace are gathered into his harvest. Paul knows this. His heart aches for his countrymen. Paul recognizes Israel as God's chosen people, his countrymen according to the flesh, He says in verse 4, Who are Israelites, and listen to these six things, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, service of God, and all of the promises in the Old Testament. God recalls these six amazing privileges given to the Jews. You see, Israel was given these six privileges For one purpose. And that purpose might be considered the seventh privilege granted to Israel by God. Paul states it in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Messiah came. The Jews were privileged to bring salvation to the world. And finishing verse 5, Christ came... Who is over all, the blessed God. Amen. Think that thought again. Christ came, who is over what? All. Who is he? The blessed God. Amen. That statement is a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. Get your pencil out and underline that in your Bible. Why was Israel privileged? From whom, according to the f- flesh, Christ came. To die for us, he had to be our kindred, our kinsman. And he came to the privileged nation Israel. He was born a Jew. In fact, I think it's interesting. The first verse in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, states that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yet tragically, John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, but verse 11, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This was a blown opportunity of what I would call mega proportions. The Christ... The Messiah came to Israel. They had the opportunity to repent and receive him. Israel's repentance was to have two purposes. First of all was individual. That individual Israelites would be forgiven of their sins. And then secondly, for Israel, the nation, her Messiah would return as king and reign. But Israel rejected Jesus, their Messiah. But this shared nationwide stumbling, which Paul teaches about in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, is temporary, not permanent. But don't worry this morning. You're not expected to understand at all. Certainly I don't. And when you begin teaching about things you don't know, then people begin to worry. But I have to admit, I don't fully comprehend all that God is teaching us through Paul in these three chapters. You see, all of this, how the Old Testament truth, how it fits together with New Testament truth, it goes beyond our full comprehension because our intelligence and our capacity is finite. God is infinite. So let me quote again from Isaiah 55.8, 55.8, for God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. One writer put it this way, I like this. The difference between God and man is far greater than the difference that exists between man and his dog. You can teach your or train your dog to go get the paper, maybe even your slippers, but you can't sit down and, and read it to him, and then discuss the news. Although I've seen it happen a time or two. Some things are just beyond our comprehension. Sometimes we have to believe two truths that in our finite minds seem contradictory. It's like two railroad tracks. Have you ever stood, look both ways first, but have you ever stood in the middle of the track, on a straight track, And watch how they come together. Uh, McGee says, Where do those two truths that seem parallel throughout every, you know, walk down and they're still parallel, walk further, they're still parallel. Where do they come together? He says, At the throne of God, at the mind of an infinite God. A legitimate offer of the kingdom was made. To the Jews by Jesus offering himself as the Messiah and king of kings and king of Israel this offer was rejected as God had anticipated and ultimately this rejection led to the cross Israel as a nation stubborn and hard of heart was not going to turn and repent even though a small remnant of them did you see God has always promised he promised throughout the Old Testament that a remnant of his chosen people would always remain there would always be a testimony a witness of him on this earth our fourth idea in the bulletin <clears throat> God is reaching out to the world through the rejection and the hardness of Israel's heart, until sometime in the future, by the awful testings of the tribulation, Israel Israel will be brought to their knees, humbled, and truly as a nation, they will repent. The nation didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. And God, knowing their heart, the heart of each and every one knew that they would not. But in His faithfulness, He made that offer. Our fifth point. We can look back and realize now that God, knowing their stubbornness and hardness of heart, chose to use that stubbornness to set Israel aside temporarily to extend the offer of salvation To the nations, the Gentiles, that's you and me. The Jews have been set aside, but it's only for now. Paul continues in verse 6, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham physically. I think Paul is saying by uh, two things by this statement. First, only those who are by faith, by believing in the promised Messiah, are they truly sons of Abraham. In the Sunday school class, we sing, um, "Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had." Maybe we should do that next Sunday morning. Maybe not. Okay. Also. Paul may have been referring to Abraham's son by the flesh, Ishmael, conceived and born through Hagar, the servant, by Sarah and Abraham's disbelief. Old Testament scriptures tell us then Abraham and Sarah believed God, and in their old age they had a son named Isaac, the son of promise. Paul goes on in verse 7 to quote, uh, In Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed of Abraham. Paul tells the Galatians, the Galatian believers in chapter uh, 4 of that book, verse 28, Now we, brethren, that's us, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Verse 9, and I've put it up here because I like my picture. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And as Abraham was told this, Sarah was inside the tent, and it says that Sarah laughed at the improbability. The name Isaac, do you know what it means? laughter that's true in verse 10 paul continues to point out god's sovereignty and his ability to choose to foreknow the future and the hearts of mankind and not only this paul says but when rebecca also had conceived by one man even by our father isaac for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That happens sometimes when your older brother comes and works with you, with you for a few years. Okay. Or your grandson. But never mind. Okay. Well, now let me tell you the story. It's found in Genesis 25. Rebekah had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And before either of them had done a thing, they hadn't attended church or given an offering or fed a, a poor person. Before they did their first good, God chose Jacob over Esau. Now this story unfolds as the twin brothers, are. Re- they begin to reveal their true nature as they interact with each other, maybe as teens or young adults. Esau, now he's the older twin. He's born seconds before Jacob. Do you know why I know it was seconds? Because Jacob had a hold of his foot as Esau was born. So however long an arm is, I guess, That might be more than a second. Now, as the older, that's Esau, the firstborn, Esau is privileged to receive the family birthright. Now, what does that mean? That he will receive Isaac's special spiritual blessing. Also, a greater part, I believe, two-thirds of the inheritance, as well as the special place of leadership, of the entire family at Isaac's death. Quite a bundle of privilege and wealth. So Esau, now he's the larger, stronger twin, and he's favored by Jacob. Jacob's more of an outdoorsman. Or, uh, but yeah, where am I? Favored by, by Isaac the outdoors. Now Jacob, smaller and favored by Rebekah, works inside cooking, cleaning, fixing household items. And Genesis 25:27 tells us, "So the boys So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebekah loved Jacob Jacob even his name means tricky or devious he was finding ways all the time to outwit Esau one such occasion appeared when Esau came home from hunting as Jacob was cooking a delicious stew Esau was tired worn out from hiking and hunting. And he was, in his words, so hungry, I'm about to die. The story is in Genesis 25. Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, well, take an oath or swear to me. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then Esau ate and drank, arose, and went his way. The way it's recorded in Genesis 25, it says this, Thus, Esau despised his birthright. He was spurning spiritual beliefs and blessings. Now Jacob showed cunning calculating methods, but Esau demonstrated that he lived his life for the immediate cravings and pleasures. Well, back to Romans verse 13, where Paul quotes a startling statement from the Old Testament scriptures in Malachi. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, I think this figure of speech is called hyperbole or exaggeration. God actually loved both boys, but his plans for Jacob made his plans for Esau look like hate. The love-hate phrasing is meant to show a contrast. Jesus used the same idea when he spoke in Luke, Chapter 14, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I like what the New American Standard has as a footnote. By comparison for his love for me. Clearly, Jesus doesn't want us to carry bitter, angry feelings toward our fathers, mothers, wives, or children. In fact, Jesus' two commands are to love God and love others as we love ourselves. He says to hate ourselves, to follow Him. There are, uh, these things here, as, as He says, we're not called to hate anyone. This is used again as an illustration for us to understand that we are to love God the most. God's love for Jacob was revealed in his choice for Jacob. And God's hatred for for Esau was seen in his rejecting Esau for the line of promise, the blessings of the birthright. Remember, the, the older will serve the younger. The New Living Translation, I like how it says it here in Romans 9, verse 13. In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. The bigger issue for Paul's argument is that God made this decision about Jacob and Esau based on nothing more than the fact that God has the right to decide. He is God, after all. Is that fair? That's been asked through the ages. Paul will address that in the following verses. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now I've already pointed out that many of our friends with humanistic values would undoubtedly disagree. God must meet our human expectations, use his knowledge to better my situation, use his power to lift me up. Well, we'll see that Scripture tells us otherwise. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Verse uh, number six in our bulletin, Mankind isn't the highest being, the zenith of living things, nor are we the center of God's created universe. We're not even worthy of God's mercy. We're sinners. Verse 16. So then, Paul says, it is not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He is God. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. In fact, someone said this it's not as surprising that God hated Esau as it is that he loved Jacob. That's what should surprise us. It's astonishing that God loves any of us for that matter. But God has the right to choose. I like what my friend Sandy Adams says. We're all glad God has given us a choice. So why begrudge him his? Verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, brought you into the scene of history, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. In this verse, we see that Pharaoh was ruler over Egypt, not just because God allows him, but because in this Pharaoh's case, God caused him to be. Did Pharaoh have a free will then? Well, yes. But God caused this particular man to reign in Egypt at the time of the Exodus because he knew this particular man's heart. Paul is telling us that God knew he would resist and rebel against God's command. Verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Mm, He hardens. Paul points to the Pharaoh of the Exodus as an example of a person that God chooses to reject. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could bring him down, and in so doing, demonstrate his power. But as we read the story in the Old Testament, what I remember from an an old radio announcer or television, here's the rest of the story. In the book of Genesis, we'll see both sides. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. See, they began to believe. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Now down in verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. You see, Pharaoh hardened his own heart toward God. But God also hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see this in several passages, and I've chosen two. One before the incident, the first one, when God was sending Moses back to Egypt, Exodus 7, verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, God says. The next time was after uh, our other scriptures. This time, just Before the eighth plague, the one of the locusts, Exodus 10, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. So here's an important thought we need to remember. God's sovereignty didn't override Pharaoh's compliant, obedient heart. God stiffened a heart that was already committed to stubbornness. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Well, Paul is clear The clay has no say. What right does the clay have to tell the potter what he can and cannot do? The clay has no authority. The potter has complete mastery over the clay. God is sovereign. But let me tell you what God's sovereignty, his foreknowledge and election is not based on. The idea that God foreknew and thus elected or chose some for mercy is not based on his ability to look ahead, helplessly, observing from a hilltop an accident about to happen at a dangerous blind intersection. Nor is it because God can see into the future using his time machine and he watches it happening. Now, that would be good for the lottery, but that's not what I believe God does. That doesn't explain His sovereignty. Many times God chooses because He knows the thoughts and the heart completely of each person. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and He chooses or elects us to mercy and salvation on that basis. Now, haven't you ever said to someone, I knew you were going to say that. I knew, I just knew how you were going to react. You knew them. You knew their values and attitudes, their likes and dislikes, even previous behavior. You weren't surprised you could have scripted their words. Well, I think that's one way God chooses But even more than that, we have to believe that God is sovereign. There are times and people where God chooses, He elects because He is God. Now, when I believe this, here's what I also have to believe. To believe, as James pointed out to us in James chapter 1, that God will never, Never be the cause of evil. Either in my life, or your life, or throughout history. James tells us, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone the one thing we have to see about God throughout the Bible is that He is above all. God is supreme, the one and only God. He has the right to do as He pleases. We're told this by Isaiah in chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasures. He said to Babylon at her height of glory, Isaiah 47. Therefore hear this now, you Babylon, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. That's what they're saying. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. That's a claim that there's no God for them to answer to. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you or led you astray. And you have said in your heart, I am. And there is no one else beside me. Peter called these kind of people scoffers in the last days. Though Babylon thought she was unique, saying, I am and there is none beside me. She was wrong. God is the only one who is unique. As Isaiah stated repeatedly, I've brought this one verse, Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 46, The King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. The first time God said this was to Moses, Exodus 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall tell the children of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. So when we study this Exodus with our kids in the back, we say to ask God these seven questions and listen to his answer. Ask, are you the only true and living God? I am. Are you the creator? I am. Are you eternal? I am. Are you almighty in power? I am. Are you holy and perfect? I am. Are you sovereign over all? I am. And best of all, are you able to save us? I am. And that's the question I want to end on this morning. God is not willing that any should perish. Peter said it again in uh, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, including sinful mankind. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think McGee said it to me the first time I heard it. God's choosing is also like this. He says, we're driving down the freeway and we're going to take an off-ramp. And the off-ramp says, big words, whosoever will. And you say, I think I want to. Now, you might be at that off-ramp right now yourself. God, are you able to save? Say it with me. I am. That may be the off-ramp that you're at. You have the choice. You have the steering wheel. Maybe you need to make that choice this morning. God, thank you for loving me. I'm not worthy. But you love me. And you've died for me. How more could he show that he is for you and for me? And so... Cross under that off-ramp sign with me right now. Some of you, for the first time, do it. Lord, I accept Jesus. And as you go under that ramp, you look back. And what does it say on the backside? Chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Do you understand it? No. Is it true? Yes. Yes. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Christ, Messiah, Savior, King of Kings. We bow to you this morning. We ask you to be our Savior, our King. We repent of our sins. We know we're not worthy, but you have promised that you are not willing that any should perish. We come to you, many of us, many years ago to be your children, perhaps some even this morning. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Please stand and worship with one more song this morning. Well, as I dismiss you here, uh, if you'd like to come up and uh, have someone pray with you, we'll have a lady there at the library and some of our elders up here.